millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm David Kern with the Cersei Podcast Network, and this is the Ask Andrew Podcast, a weekly show in which Andrew Kern answers your questions about the purpose essence, and practice of Christian classical education. The episode you are about to listen to was recorded this spring as part of the Ask Andrew webinar series and has been lightly edited to suit the podcast experience specifically. To learn more about the webinars, the podcast, or how to submit a question, head over to searcyinstitute.com slash askandrew. And with that, here is this week's episode. Hope you enjoy. Okay, so on, on Tuesday, we were talking about the, the relationship between the arts and sciences. And perhaps you remember that there were seven liberal arts that underlay four or maybe five sciences, depending on how, how you look at it. And the basic scale or the basic ladder was that when it comes to knowing our senses perceive things fairly easily when they're sensory, right? So, so we can relatively easily see colors and dogs and st- things like that. So we can get physical knowledge. And that's what is meant or was meant by the natural sciences, by phusis was the ancient Greek word. But then there's something higher than that. There's, there's this inner sensitivity that we have toward things like justice, uh, toward equity, kind of a moral harmony, I would call it. So we, we, we are sensitive toward moral discord within ourselves and within society. And that sensitivity toward moral discord leads to a different kind of question than physics questions and chemistry questions, doesn't it? It leads to moral questions, ethical questions, even political questions. And so that kind of knowing, and and the classical educators insisted that there is a kind of knowing in the moral realm, but it's not the same as a physical knowing or as knowing in the physical realm. You don't know morals the same way that you know chemistry. That, by the way, would explain a lot about modern politics and media, wouldn't it? We try to reduce everything to, to, to natural science. But then even moral science, there's, there's a kind of knowing that's even more difficult, if you like, even more hard to perceive than moral science, than moral things. And that is just flat out, um, I don't know how to put it out. I'm going to say purely purely abstract things that we see with our mind but that don't exist in any observable way in any physical realm. So, for example, justice, you can see an act and at least see a degree of justice in it. There's no perfectly just act that humans do, but 
you can at least see that some acts are more just than others. But it's very difficult. I'm not sure what would be a great, great example of this, except something like being, which I think I talked about on Tuesday. It's hard to see being, isn't it? We can see beings, small b. We can see things that come and go and change and generate and die. So we can see being if it is in a being, or we can see change if we see something change. But it's very difficult to see change itself or to understand change itself apart from change happening in something. Well, that leads to incredibly difficult arguments among philosophers. And it leads to schools of thought. There's, there's three, three primary schools of thought on this, which I'll just give you very, very quickly and then apologize for wasting your time. One we could call moderate realism. That's the Aristotelian Thomistic school of thought. Another is called sort of pure realism. And that would be a Platonic school of thought. And then there's nominalism. So in nominalism, if change actually works well for this point, in nominalism, the nominalist would say change doesn't exist anywhere but in the word change. It's just a name we give to things. The Aristotelian, the realist, would, the moderate realist, would look at, at change and say the only place change exists is in things that change. And here I'm in over my head, but I think the Platonic realist, the pure, pure realist, would say change exists even if there is no physical realm. Now, it may be that change is a defect. So maybe change isn't a good example for that. Um, maybe, a better, maybe a better example would be number. So the number seven. An Aristotelian would say the number seven exists in seven things. So if you have, if you have seven dice or seven spots on a dice even, you have seven. But the seven exists in the dice. A nominalist would say seven exists in your head. You've got the idea of seven in your head, and so you put it into physical objects, but it's in your head. The realist would say, the platonic realist would say, Seven exists whether there are things that have sevenness to them or not. Seven came first, and then something that there could be seven of. Now, I don't personally know how to resolve the, the issue between those three, but I use it to show you how incredibly difficult the questions become at this level. How you, you have to be so trained philosophically just to understand what the issue is. I mean, how many of you are thinking, this is stupid, right? Or how many of you are thinking, why would somebody think about that? Well, the implications are quite profound. Civilizations take different directions based on whether they're nominalist, realist, or, or, or moderate realist. 
And then you get to, and, and by the way, nominalism basically wins the day in the 16th and 17th century. And almost everybody today is a nominalist by habit. They aren't, people aren't nominalists by training now, but they're nominalists by habit. Which means that for the most part, we are not trained to think we live in a real world. We're trained to think we live in a world of appearances and we see it as it is in our head. But the world is, you, you can't know the real world. All you can know is the world in your head. Okay, enough, enough, sorry. That is, for the philosopher, a kind of knowledge, a science, philosophical science. It raises all kinds of questions like, well, how do you know? That's what philosophers think about, right? What's real and how do you know? But even beyond that, even beyond that is the highest of all knowledges, and that's theological knowledge. Now, theology is a term that Aristotle coined. So next time a Christian asks you, you or tells you you shouldn't be reading Greek pagan thinkers, ask them if they do theology. And if they say yes, they do, then point out to them that they're just doing Aristotelian stuff. I'm very sorry, but you can't escape the Greeks. They've given us our minds and our worlds. There's no getting away from the Greeks. That was God's purpose. So theology then becomes, I don't know how to put it, except it's the, it's the intellectual perception of God. Now, there's all kinds of discussions about this, just like the realist, moderate realist, and so on. Some people think the only way you can know God is by a direct experience, direct mystical experience. Some people think that you can know God by thinking really hard for a long, long time, by studying things. Some people think the only way you can know God is by loving. I think in the case of both this knowing God question and the metaphysics question, the Bible leaves us to work it out on our own, but does give us clues. Like, for example, I think when God said, let there be light, that would affirm the idea that the being of a thing is in the word. But when God speaks the word, the, things comes, the thing comes into actual being. So it's both nominal and moderate realist, but also it was in the mind of God. So maybe it's also realist, right? So maybe it's all there. I don't know. But these are things that are really super hard to deal with. By the way, here's a practical application since you're looking for one of those. This is why I don't believe you should teach philosophy to high school students. They can't do it. There is no high school student in the history of the world. There is nobody under 20 years old in the history of the world that has ever been able to learn philosophy. They've been able to learn about it, and they've been able to learn consequences of it. But it takes decades to be able to think those thoughts. In fact, Plato argued you got to be 50, I think it was, and Aristotle said you have to be 40. So I don't, I, I'm not saying it's a waste of time to teach kids about philosophy, but to think they're going to understand it, ask them what seven is and see how far they can explain it to you. That's doing philosophy. That's why I talk about rhetoric being the one art to rule them all because it's a ruler of the arts, not of the sciences. But if you don't do rhetoric, and if you don't do 
all seven liberal arts, then you can't possibly do the higher level studies well. Or, or, or the, the better way to put it is, it's not an either or. Let me put it this way. The degree to which you have mastered the seven liberal arts is the degree to which you can master the higher sciences. And there's a, there's a, let's call it adequacy. There's a level of adequacy that you have to attain to before you can presume to study natural science. For example, if you can't read a scientific report, you're not going to be able to do science. If you can't report to somebody else what you've discovered, you can't do science. If you can't use logic, you can't do science. If you can't assess your experiment mathematically, you can't do science. Do you see? Now, one of the complications we run into is that for you and me in this day and age, now, some of you have been putting up with me for a few weeks now, so, so you're, you're ahead of, of the point I'm about to make. But, but most of us, and certainly me growing up, and you know, I'm, I'm in this archaeological dig. Let's just say us as a culture, us as a society, we don't think of rhetoric as the liberal art. If any of you were in my talk this afternoon, we, we, you remember I talked about how in the 17th century, rhetoric was just hacked off. And so it was reduced to one main function, two, two of the canons, elocution and delivery. Okay, but what are the points of elocution and delivery? To make the truth beautiful, to make it more interesting, right? To make the audience more receptive to it. All of which I think is bogus. I don't think truth needs anything added to it to make it more interesting. I don't think it needs anything added to it to make it more beautiful. It just needs to be permitted to radiate, to shine. And the task of rhetoric, in my understanding and opinion, is to make the truth radiate its own inner essence. Your function, your function as a teacher is like the function of the Holy Spirit. It's to bear witness, to point, or maybe it's like John the Baptist, to point at the truth and say, behold, and you help the student behold, but then you also, you have the glorious privilege of teaching them how to behold. That's why rhetoric is the ruler of the arts, because it takes all the other arts and combines them into a very practical and a very transcendent activity. It's practical because it's about decision-making, and what's more practical than making decisions? But it's transcendent because it's about perceiving truth. And what is a higher function than perceiving the truth? And that's why I contend that it's critical, essential, uncompromisable, that if you're going to teach rhetoric, you have to do two things. One is you have to teach them in the Homeric way, which is to say you have to teach them, you have to teach them the story of the catastrophe of misused rhetoric. Because that's what Homer teaches his students first. If you use this wrong, you can destroy your civilization. 
And kids who are studying rhetoric need to learn that. They can't just learn the tools without knowing that they can destroy their house with them. The second thing that you have to learn as part of rhetoric is the tools of invention and arrangement. And those are tools of practical logic, of material logic. And as you go through the lost tools of writing, by the time you get to level three, you're also getting into formal logic. So this is the structure. Here's the thing. Material and formal logic is the structure of the world we live in. And it's the structure of the mind that thinks about the world that we live in. It's rooted in comparing. The simple act of comparison, it's the most powerful thing you can do. That's what logic is rooted in. Are these two things alike or different? Given that they are different in this way, what causes that difference? Now you're into the question of how are they related to each other? And logic is exploring things like cause and effect relationships. That's what rhetoric is teaching children practically and transcendently, immediately and ultimately. And you're teaching, I think I, I meant to say rhetoric if I said logic. That's what rhetoric is teaching. But only if you teach classical rhetoric in its full, full-orbed reality. This is why I'm not ashamed anymore, not hesitant anymore to say, I guess I was never ashamed, but I wouldn't have said it often in public. But I will publicly say now that the Lost Tools of Writing is, in my view, the best rhetoric program that's developed, perhaps in all of human history of the kind it is, but certainly in the last few hundred years. The best rhetoric curriculum ever made. The reason I say that is because prior to the 17th century, nobody made a rhetoric curriculum, right? The idea before that was, you know rhetoric, so you teach it. But now we're in a world where we haven't learned it. The goal, you know what the goal of the Lost Tools of Writing is? It's to make itself expendable. It's to make it so that you don't need it. It's to make it so the student doesn't need it. So that your child can learn rhetoric so well as a child that when he's an adult as a parent, he or she can teach your kid, your grandchildren rhetoric without any books, just by the day-to-day -day activity. That's the goal. Okay, let me wrap up my thought here. There is, there is a parallel. Some of you heard me say earlier that, that rhetoric is the prince ruler, the male ruler, the, the ruler who proclaims and leads and guides outwardly. I also believe that there's a, there's a ruler, co-ruler in the seven liberal arts that rules internally. The breath, the spirit of the seven liberal arts. That, that feeling side, if you want to put it that way, and that's the art of harmony or harmonia or music. Because we are so hypersensitive to discord that that's how we know when we're doing something wrong, when somebody else has done something wrong, the way things ought to be in society, the way things ought to be in a book, right? We are so hypersensitive to discord that the art of harmony works quietly behind the scenes so much so that most people don't think when they're studying logic that they're studying harmony, right? But that's precisely what you're studying, the art of harmonizing a series of thoughts. We have a million words for it, agreement, coherence, on and on, but it's all harmony. Harmonia, I, I, I think, I think it might be the case, it might be the case that harmonia is love. 
and, and God is love. And if that's the case, then I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that God is harmony. As the Trinity, it makes some sense. Please do not paganize this. Please do not make this a false God. But I think that it's, it's, a, it's a perhaps a quality of God's very being. And that's where the inspiration and the beauty and the passion for learning come from, is when, is when you experience the delight and pleasure of resolved discord. That's what makes somebody love math, is that they discover that they can resolve these discords and it gives them so much pleasure that they just keep going. That's why people think they hate math, is because they get stuck in the discord and they can't resolve it. And they hate, they hate the discord. And so then they blame it on math, on the subject math, which, you know, it's the art of math. It's, it's the art of bringing harmony. So I'm going to stop there because I'll, I'll pick that up on Tuesday. I want to talk on Tuesday um, about this whole parallel reign that the prince and princess share, that there's rhetoric from the verbal side. Harmony, really in a deep sense, harmony is what mediates the two sides. Music is what brings the language arts and the, mathematical arts together so we'll, we'll talk about unless people object we'll talk about that on tuesday um but also questions that you send in all right um with that kate you've got five questions for me the first question is asking you to do something you don't like to do and get practical but we're gonna Wait, take stop it right there are you martin cothran or something <laughs> how can you say that Okay. Okay. Then prove to me that you like this for one minute. You can enjoy telling us how, what a school day would look like if rhetoric was raining the day we're raining the day. What, what would that look like practically? Huh? Wow. So many things. Wow. So many things at the, at the, um, does, does my chair make a loud noise when I do this? Is it distracting to you? Okay, so I'll just go like this while I talk, like it's my rocking chair. Now you can hear me better. Okay, start the minute over, Kitty. Oh my it gosh! Would, it, it would have it would have application at the assessment level, the pedagogical level, the curricular level, the uh, governance level, the community level, and the cosmological level. So let's start at the pedagogical level. When you teach with rhetoric being your guide. You are teaching rhetorically in the sense that you are guiding your student to think about reality and to perceive truth. You are teaching them step-by-step step and in an intelligent, orderly way, but not too tightly, um, the tools of thought that make up invention, arrangement, and elocution. That's the first thing. Okay, you well, that's all the time you're being given, so. What? what? Well done. That was very practical. Your time is up. <laughs> My time's up? Yeah. No. Wow, you really nailed it on the head there. Okay. I can't um, believe she actually thinks that was practical. Or she's just flat out mocking me. <laughs> I mean, it was going to be practical and then I cut you off, but you were really, you were really getting there. The next question luckily allows you to carry on with the last one. Oh, the good. question is... Um, how do we do assessment? I'm going to use your expression and say that blesses, but with all of these things in mind, um, how do we go about assessment? 
Yeah. Well, ultimately, what you're asking is at the end of the lesson, at the end of my student's experience, is his soul more harmonious? And does he exercise more dominion over his life? And the more practical way of looking at it would be that there are three fundamental things you're teaching your children. You're teaching them skills, principles or slash ideas, and you're teaching them, let's call them facts or information. There's things that that those bits of information or facts or whatever you want to call it, they need to remember the skills they need to master and the ideas or principles they need to understand. And therefore, not only do you teach them differently, but you assess them differently. You assess understanding primarily by joy. What you're looking for is the ability of the child to express the thing that he understands, but note I use the word ability. Therefore, the ability, therefore, your ability to express, to assess his ability, sorry, your ability to assess his understanding of an idea. Are you telling me time's up? Because I can't hear it. Oh, yes, time's up. I just didn't want to interrupt you mid sentence. So I was going to show you and let you finish your sentence. Yeah. Well, your ability to assess their understanding of an idea also depends on their ability to use the skill to express the idea. So, for example, if they can't talk, they can't tell you what they're thinking. Talking is a skill. What they're thinking about is ideas. So you need to be able to assess both of them, but see them as different things. More exactly, you're going to assess writing skills and you're going to assess comprehension, I guess. But that's why reading programs are so lost. They don't know what reading comprehension is. And then when it comes to, when it comes to um, assessing information, it's retention primarily. And that's where you can turn to percentages. What percent did my child, what percent did my child learn? Let me very quickly say that when it comes to skills, there's one huge mistake that you're going to be tempted to make, and that is to compare your child to other people on a given skill to see how well they're doing. That is a completely useless bit of information. There is literally nothing practical that you can do with it. All you can do is make sure that you and they both feel insecure or proud when you find out how they compare to other people. That's why Paul explicitly says that they they measuring themselves among themselves and comparing themselves with themselves are not wise. And he was talking, obviously, about the SAT and the, the ACT. So, 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 so that point is crucial. Then the question becomes, what do you compare them with? And the answer is, it's a skill. You compare them with how they did yesterday, and you compare them with how well they imitated the model that you gave them. So how does a, how does a music teacher assess? How does a football coach assess? It's coaching when it comes to skills. And the worst thing you can do, in my opinion, in that context is give a grade. It's totally distracting. I, I exaggerated. I said worse than totally. That's impossible. But it's really bad, and it's very distracting. Okay, I'm, I'm done now. Agreed. Since you've carried on into the next minute, um, you, you said to assess understanding primarily by joy. Someone's asked a question about this. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Oh, yeah, sure. Because, because the idea here is... is Understanding is harmonizing in a way, right? You're you're living in a discord. You can't figure out the math problem, so you're stuck in discord. You can't figure out how to do a simile, so you're stuck in discord. You can't figure out what the point of the story is, so you're stuck in discord. And then something happens. It connects. It's magic. And frankly, it's magic. 
And when that happens, the immediate expression is an expression of joy, of light. We even say enlightenment, right? We even say illumination. So what's happened there is that the child has, has experienced a brief moment of a spark. We talk, we even use light bulbs in the comic strips, right? Light shines. We all, all understand the analogy. And the feeling we have is joy. And so that's the first indication that they've attained the understanding you're looking for. Joy. Great. Probably the only reliable one. I would agree with that. Okay, your next question. Um, If we have children who are not believers, can classical education give them the ability or help them reason their way to Christ? Uh, It depends what you mean, because... because, um, uh, well, the answer is yes, if you mean in the, in the uh, you know, decontextualized, can it help them reason their ways to Christ? Because, because when you reason, everything that you're reasoning is in the form of Christ, right? The, the, every truth you discover is you discover by an incarnate, log, incarnate logos. But it might take forever, and they're going to have to also overcome every distraction, right? It's, it's like reading the Odyssey. I believe without any shadow of a doubt that the Odyssey lays out the path to the gospel. But not very many people who read it are going to think that. So reasoning is a valuable thing to do, but all by itself, there's just too many other things that distract us. The, the way we come to Christ is when, we, when, when he is proclaimed to us. That's what Paul tells us. We proclaim Christ, and we proclaim the Christ crucified. And, and what we have to be, we have to, both of those points, right? Jesus is Lord and Christ. He's crucified, but he's also resurrected and ascended into heaven. And what we need to do is proclaim that in every way we possibly can, usually formally, and occasionally by actually saying it. And, and, and the Spirit of God will work on the child's soul to perceive and accept that, but there isn't anything beyond proclaiming that we can do. Because if we do, then we're taking the place of God and we're trying to manipulate the child into the kingdom or we're trying to threaten them into the kingdom. And that's a really good way to keep them out. Or even to make them think, right? You might even change the gospel so that your child will accept it. Imagine that. You might inadvertently change the gospel so that your child will accept it. That's a terrifying thought. I can't believe I just said that. That's the most terrifying thought I've ever had. It's very sobering. <laughs> Did the internet cut out or are you? No, I just ran out of time. By that thought. I'm doing your job for you. Okay. Yeah, that, that last comment is still lingering in my mind. Um, I have one last question for you. Um, thinking about the should question, does the should question cause the child to think that their perspective matters more than the characters and the story? Is it taking them out of the story? It can. It can. It doesn't have to, but it can. Uh, it'll depend on how you approach it as a teacher and how they approach it as a reader. Um, what you want to do with the should question is participate in the character. The should question for me primarily comes from Hamlet. And Hamlet 
talks about a necessary question, right? That's how I actually prefer to talk about it, the necessary question. Every character in a story, the fact that he's in the story means that he has his own necessary question. And it's a question that gives his place in the story. The main character has the main necessary question. And his necessary question is the climax of the story. He's, he lives through this complicated process by which the rising action, we call it now, right? But it's the complication. And there's all these threads being woven and they're strangling this poor guy. And then he comes to that moment of, in Greek, crisis. Crisis means moment of decision, moment of judgment. And at that moment in the story, the main character decides what he's going to do about all his suffering and all his problems. And that decision is whether the author means it to be or not, the main point the author's making. Now, that is a dangerous statement because you could then reduce the whole story to that moment. And that would be to kill the book, right? That would be to kill your puppy so that you can dissect it, you, to run it over with a lawnmower and then give it to your kid. So there's a very great danger of, of killing the story. But if you participate in the journey of the character, which is why you're reading the story anyway, right? If you participate in the journey, then you're going to start asking the questions he's asking. And the main question he's asking is, dang it, what am I going to do about this? Illustration, perfect illustration, perfect illustration, Anna Karenina, most perfect novel ever written. Every single book, chapter rather, which is four or five pages, is based on one character having to make a decision. And what does Vronsky keep saying from the beginning of the book to the end? What is to be done? What is to be done? What is to be done? Right? What's he saying? What should I do? Right? Now, maybe I should even stress this, even though Katie was supposed to stop me a long time ago. Um, well, you started talking about Anna Karen and I couldn't. And oh, I went to keep going. There's about a thousand different ways to ask the should question. Right? You don't have to always say, what should you do? You can also say, is there a better way to do this? Because what's implied? That means what should you, that is, you know, should, if it's better, you should do it. Was that fair? Was he treating that person right? All of these are should questions. So don't feel like there's this rule, this lockdown question that's inflexible and you have to ask it exactly the same way. No, it's a, it's a key. It's a key that opens the door to the story. So do not let yourself become a, um, you know, a slave driver. Now, when you start, when you're first doing it, it's probably easiest to just ask should because, because it's there. It's easy to remember. But let, let it blossom. Think of it like that old, the, the, the metaphor of the rose bush again, the, the rosebud. Right? The should question is a rosebud, but it's closed when you just say, should he do it? As it opens, you'll see all these beautiful different ways to explore the question. Is that a good idea? What about what did that guy do? Was that better or worse? These are should questions. And let yourself let yourself wander on it. I'm gonna stop you there. Yeah. Um, we've gone only seven minutes over, which isn't terrible. <laughs> but we have gone seven minutes over. So um the evening is officially finished. However, it's up to you if you want to stay and keep answering questions. Well, I want to comment on what Karen Harris wrote, because it's really an important point and really well said. 
my adult son, she's, I hope you don't mind, Karen, that I'm reading this out loud, but my adult son said after learning to reason, I love that, that there was no other answer to all the questions besides Jesus. Of course, this is only a result of the Holy Spirit, but to hear his very logical reasoning is fascinating. See, this is what I want you to understand. Reason is an expression of God's being. Reason is not a human faculty, right? Well, it is. It's a human faculty, but only because we're an image of God. And so for us, like you'll often hear, you can't, you can't trust reasoning because we're broken. Human, human reason is fallen. No, human reason is not fallen. The human faculty, sorry, the human use of reason is fallen. Human reason doesn't exist. There is no such thing, so how could it fall? Reason is divine. It is, it is an expression or an emanation of God's being. Christ is the Logos, and Logos is the Greek word for reason. And that's why reason permeates all of existence. Therefore, if you say the word, if you say the phrase kind of loosely and say um, human reason has fallen, what you mean by that is we don't think with pure thoughts. Absolutely, that is true. The human ability to reason is broken. Everything about us is broken. But if you start thinking that there's this separate thing, this separate kind of ontological category, forgive me, the separate being that's over here called human reason, and then there's God's reasoning over here, and like they're two different things. No, there's no such thing as human reason. We can't create out of nothing. Human reason is just a shadow of God's reason. And God's reason permeates everything. That is why the Holy Spirit is a spirit of wisdom, and he's a spirit of harmony, and he's a spirit of, what, what, what is it? He's a spirit of truth. He's a spirit of, there's another word that, that I'm trying to think of that's a really common um, statement about what the Holy Spirit is, a spirit of something. Um, but peace is one. Um, Anyway, what I'm getting at is this comes back to that sort of harmony and uh, um, rhetoric thing, the two sides, right? The Holy Spirit is more like harmony, more manifested in harmony. He's the spirit of unity. I think that's what I was trying to think of. He's the spirit of oneness. And there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. If there's division, if there's strife, then what you know for a fact is that's not the Holy Spirit causing that. Now, how the division is created, that's another issue. But if there's division, well, there's kinds of division. If there's discord, let me put it that way. If there's discord, that is not the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So, so when we talk about reason, it's exceedingly important in my belief that we not be locked into a Cartesian post-enlightenment form of reason, right? Modern thought has set aside this rational side over here that's kind of mathematical and firm and hard. Have you ever heard the term cold reason? Hard, cold reason, have you ever heard that? I, I, I've heard it, maybe I just said it and that's why I heard it, but um, I, I've heard reason described in these, 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 like it's hard and it's icy and it's not loving. And that's bogus. That's not reason. That's not reason. 
Reason is warm. It's beautiful. You know why, you know why Michelangelo's paintings were so fabulous? Because they were rational. You know why Bach's music was so otherworldly? You know why the Mass in B minor stirs every bone in your body and every, what do you have in your soul? Every passion in your soul? Because it's rational. But not in a modern sense. Not in a post-romantic sense. Not in this fragmented sense. But in this, I would say, Christian sense and even classical sense that all is one that God is the principle of unity and that he is true and he is beautiful and he is just and he is merciful and there is no conflict between any of those things. He is, theologically speaking, simple. All of those things can be separated for us in our minds only because we can't see directly into their radiant glory. But they're all the same thing in God. So, so I love this point. So, so and it kind of relates to that question about, about the um, reason, can we reason ourselves to God? If you reasoned completely without sin, you would reason yourself to God. <laughs> so get rid of your sin and everything will be fine. In fact, Jesus kind of says that in an in a, in a indirect way when he challenges the Pharisees, I think it's John 6, when he says to the Pharisees, how can you believe? And what's his reason? He doesn't say, how can you believe without being persuaded? He says, how can you believe when you seek the honor that comes from men instead of the honor that comes from God? You talk about irrational. And yet, what do we, we are, as we're desperate for harmony, so we're desperate for praise. What Jesus is saying there is that, is that we believe what we believe because we want the people around us that we respect to approve of us. This is why it is so hard to leave a cult. That's why it's so hard to believe something politically different from what your parents taught, believed. Right. And this is good, by the way. It's good that we want the approval of people that we respect, but not when it becomes more important to us than the approval of God. And, and so if you want to reason yourself to God, then the thing you're going to have to do is accept the fact that to get there, you're going to have to reason things that the world around you is going to laugh at. You're going to have to, as Paul put it, you're going to have to become a fool for Christ. You're going to have to. That you might become wise. That's his language. And I would encourage you, I think we've talked about this before, but on the topic of rhetoric, for me, the Ur text in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 1 to 3. It will, it, if you're excited about rhetoric and you're making it your God, it will suck the life out of you. It will, it will stop you in your tracks. It will force you to give it up because it seems like such a direct assault. And until you accept what it's doing there, until, you, until it sucks it right out of your soul, you can't have it. But if you let God have it, if you give it back to him, it's like the wave offerings in the Old Testament. I love the wave offerings. As I understand it, all they would do is take some barley, barley uh, wheat and literally they just wave it back and forth, but they would wave it to God and then pull it back. 
And it seems to me, I don't know for sure, I'm no theologian, but it seems to me that at least part of what they're getting at there is when you give it to God, that's when you get it back. And until you've given it to God, it's not yours. That's, that's so important when we, we have to teach our children that, that all the things we're giving them, they are going to have to give it all up. You're going to have to give it all up. Or it will. The best gifts that we give them will destroy their souls if they hoard them. There's no safe way to raise a child, have you noticed? So I wanted to comment on that whole idea of the spirit and the rasha. What I don't want to have happen is for me to create a scenario in which we think the sun is rational and the spirit is irrational. Right? That would be very romantic. The sun is rational and the spirit is, ra is rational. But we, we experience them in different ways. But they're one. Think of how humble God is to do that. Well, thanks. Okay, so in thy light shall we see light. What a fabulous application of that verse. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. That's why Kevin rides with heaven. All right. Are there, are there any other questions or comments? I was wondering, and this is just, you don't even have to give an answer to it right now, but you had just touched on it at your seminar earlier today, just about our present situation um, and with COVID and everything that we kind of try to escape. We get happiness when we're here because we can forget about the world around us. Okay. But I would love to um, come into one of these, um, ask Andrew, and hear you talk about where we're at today and how are we to clearly think about it and reason within the chaos. Huh. Know nothing about that. <laughs> do Do you want me to make that like the the question for a for a for a um a session? I would love that. I don't know. I wonder if I, I think other people would as well. Yeah, I can. I can try that. That way, I can think about it. Um. But but what I want to begin with is no matter what practical things you do, it begins with offering yourself to God. And, and, it, and it begins with, and it begins with um, remembering that we're, we're all called to martyrdom and, and, to, and, to, and to holiness. And I, I really believe that in a way what, what, what's happening to us as American Christians is what people my generation remember our parents talking about all the time, which is this isn't going to last. You can't reject God as a culture this thoroughly and expect everything to go on forever. You can't completely overturn the moral order the way we have and think there's not going to be consequences. And, you know, we were, we, my generation, I'm 56, my generation, at least in my circles, we're, we were taught as children that the world's coming to an end. <laughs> so, I'll be surprised if this doesn't bring the world to an end because I was brought up for this. <laughs> but um, <laughs> what we cannot allow ourselves to lose sight of is that there's nothing new happening. Nothing new is happening. That I have friends who live in Russia. Some of you do too. Some of you have asked about that, that picture over there I talked about one time. Do you realize that something like 60 million Russian Christians 
were killed for being Christians. And some of them went in fear and agony. And some of them went laughing. I don't know which one I'm likely to do if I have to go, but and, and I'm putting this in really extreme terms now, I suppose. And yet, aren't we from the very beginning, weren't we told that if you're going to live a life righteous in Christ Jesus, you're going to be persecuted? Right? I don't I don't know. We might come out of this where the dream of some of the libertarians among us comes true, and the government tries to clamp down so much that the whole country just rises up and throws it off, and we form, you know, eight different unions. We might. I don't know how. Not with the internet. More likely, we're probably going to come out of this under a surveillance state. We're probably going to come out of this with um, not being able to buy and sell without stamps on our hands. And I don't. I'm. I'm again. I'm not predicting that. I'm saying that between the two options, I see that as more likely. It's. It's too hard not to centralize anymore. It's too hard to escape from the centralizing powers. My point is to say that no matter how bad it is, the book of Revelation is still written. And, and the important thing about the book of Revelation isn't to determine what every single sign means about when Jesus is coming back, in my opinion. The point of the book of Revelation is primarily to be reminded that the church is a suffering church in this world, always has been, always will be, and that suffering has always been the means of our salvation, the means of our becoming glorious. And what I, what I, what I came to notice not terribly long about, ago about the book of Revelation is that it happens almost entirely in heaven, and yet almost everything that's written about it is about what's going on on earth. Think about that. It's about heaven. What's happening in Revelation isn't all that different from Isaiah 6. And it's not very different from the book of Daniel. Goes into more detail. Goes into more specific application. But then we just fight over that, right? We all fight over who's being led by the Holy Spirit. But what's most important in the book of Revelation is what's going on in heaven. And that's also what's most important about what's happening right now in the United States, on the earth, during the coronavirus. What's most important is what's happening in heaven. And that's what we have to remember is that the lamb is still slain. But he's also, think of Stephen, that lamb is still standing when one of the martyrs gets stoned. That lamb is still interceding for you and me, right? That lamb, that lamb is still coming back, and he's still making us a home. And that holy city, New Jerusalem, is coming. And when it comes, think of this, talk about enlightenment. When it comes, there won't be any lamps, and there won't be any lights. Because the light of his countenance, the radiance of his glorious face, will so shine that there will be no darkness and shadows. And that, that is what we're giving our children hints about when we teach them math. 
right? That joy that they experience when they stay on it and they see they have that moment of enlightenment, that bright light that they think they see is a vague shadow of the brightness of God's glory and the joy. And what I want my kids to learn, what I wanted my, what I want now, I wish I had understood this better growing, raising children. This is why you need grandparents, by the way. What I wish, I wish I'd, I so wish I'd understood this when my children were little, because what I, what I want, what I want to go back and help them see is that all of these struggles in school are leading to insights and illuminations. They're analogies. They're small pictures of glory. And I don't know how I could have said that and when I could have said that. Maybe only adults can understand. I don't know. But I wanted my children, I'll say I wanted, I wanted my children to experience all those moments of resolution and harmonizing and insight that give so much joy. But that joy is petty compared to the joy of gazing on the glory of Christ's face, of having his name inscribed on your forehead. That's going to make all the suffering in this world into a joke. And it's just like the approval of your friends, right? I want my children to know that I cherish them. And when they do well, I want them to feel my pleasure. I want them to feel it. But I want them also to realize that the feeling they have of my pleasure is a joke, a pathetic, inconsequential, meaningless joke compared to that one split second when the Lord Jesus looks at them and says, well done. That's the soul's longing. I want to give them hope for that longing by giving them tastes of it, you see. But that's all I can give is a taste. And sometimes what we do, I'm changing topics now, I guess, but maybe I'm not. Sometimes what we do is we want our children to become dependent on our pleasure. Right? We want to use our pleasure not to give them an appetite for eternal glory, but to be dependent on our pleasure so that we can manage their behavior. I don't want to exaggerate, but, but in, a, in a strictly analogical sense, that's satanic. Or at least we could say that's like what Satan would do. Right? We should never be making other people dependent on our pleasure and on our approval. We should let them have it freely as a foretaste of eternal glory. And as we go through the trials of the time, and as we go through the joys of the time that we're going through right now, the only way it's going to be, the, I've always thought this, the only way life is worth living is if all of this points us to Christ. And if he shines on it, if he shines his radiant, glorious light on our household, if, 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 he, if, if, I, can, if I can restrain my demonic self enough, that something of the love and grace of Christ can flow into my daughter Katie's life, then any suffering that I've gone through is worth it. And sometimes that's what I have to do, is I have to suffer because I'm such an imbecile and so all about me 
so narcissistic and I just need to be crucified. So whatever suffering you go to go through, interesting you ask this. I'm going to end with this because of getting late again. But in James 1, okay, so I've talked to you a couple times about the Lord's Prayer, I think. But in my church school, adult Sunday school, I'm teaching through the Lord's Prayer um, in line with the temple. And the phrase coming up is the phrase, lead us not into temptation. So all this week I've been thinking about what does that mean, lead us into temptation? Why would God ever lead us into temptation? And yet he does drive Jesus into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, which is an amazing thought to me. So I'm thinking about all the different, you know, what does it mean to be tempted? But one thing that's crucial is the book of James chapter 1. The first two-thirds of that chapter are about tempting. The first 11 verses are how we should count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The word is temptations. We should count it all joy. This is ridiculous. <laughs> apart from faith and apart from spiritually perceiving it. If you believe that God himself is at work in you and through you to conform you to the pure and perfect image of his son. If you believe that God is making you everything you were created to be, which, by the way, is everything you want to be. If you believe that he's making you wise and making you courageous, and making you strong, and making you pure of heart, and making you thankful, and making you ultimately like the Jesus that you love so much and find so attractive, if you believe that he's doing that, then when you are thrown into various trials, you'll rejoice. You'll count it all joy. Because you'll say, this is what I want. It's the refiner's fire, right? Think of that old song by Steve Green. I think, he, I don't know who wrote it, but he sang it when I was young. The refiner's fire, what does he say? The refiner's fire has now become my one desire. And I can remember lying on my bed when I was about 30 years old, going through an unbearable grief because of myself. And that song playing over and over, just crying my eyes up before God and feeling an agony like I've never felt besides that time and a comfort and a peace within myself, deep in my spirit that I've never felt before or since. The refiner's fire has now become my one desire, right? That's what we're talking about. And we as a country, perhaps we're going through the refiner's fire. We as a church are, we always are. And I say, in this moment of glib comfort, sitting in my chair in my office, bring it on. <laughs> when you hear me screaming, just forget I said that, okay? Just pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me, the sinner. And Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. But if we could learn how to pray, man, okay, that's my practical. Imagine, imagine if during this time we could actually learn how to pray. Imagine if we could actually learn how to pray.
So I will I will think about this and try to give a more practical, intelligent response to it. But that's got that to me. That's got to be the starting point. We're offering ourselves to God. Whatever, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, another psalm from a song from my childhood. Lord Jesus, I love you. I know thou art mine, my rock and my fortress, my surety divine, my gracious redeemer. I forget the next line. <laughs> and then I think it goes, if ever I love thee, tis thou who art worthy, Lord Jesus, tis thou. That's one way. And if ever I love thee, Lord Jesus, tis now. Well, he's always worthy. He always deserves it. So let's always love him. That's, that's what it comes down to. Let's always love him. Thank you so much for joining me again tonight. You, you add meaning to my life. And I appreciate you so much. Well, may the Lord remember you in his kingdom. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.